Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. That call to worship, that summons at the beginning of Psalm 100, encapsulates well the lesson we learned last week from 2 Samuel 6, that God's presence is to be sought reverently, and it is to be celebrated joyfully. I pray that that is characterizing your individual worship today, even as we come together corporately as God's people. As we saw last week, within the parameters of God's Word, there is plenty of room for celebration. And there is not only plenty of room for celebration, but God's Word gives us every reason to celebrate. And that is certainly the case as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. Please turn there with me if you would. It's on page 242 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that resource. Page 242, 2 Samuel 7. One of the most important chapters, not only in 2 Samuel, but in the entire Old Testament. God makes a promise to David, actually a bundle of promises to David that hold tremendous significance for us today. The chapter begins with a burden on David's heart, a burden that he shares with his good friend, the prophet Nathan. And we read about it in verses 1 to 3. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Here we see another reason, as we have many times, Why David was called a man after God's own heart. After David became king, after he had conquered his enemies, and after he had established Jerusalem as the capital, after he brought the ark of God into the city representing the presence of God, and finally had respite from all his troubles, all his fightings, all his strivings, all his wars, all his pursuit from Saul. David sits in this beautiful house of cedar. And he wonders how he might serve the Lord in this new season of life. And I thought, how often do we tend to do the opposite? So often when when life gets hard, life gets difficult, we're in distressful circumstances, perhaps even even devastated by some trial, we, we turn to the Lord, we seek His presence. And then God comes through and He he delivers us. He sustains us. He he helps us to persevere through whatever trial we're we're going through. And and in some cases, God might even remove that trial and, and life becomes good again. And then we tend to let our priorities, our interests, move to the center. And God at that point is moved to the periphery of our lives. But not so with David. Not in this case. Instead, he he wonders now what he can do for the Lord, for the God who has done so much for him. As David sits in his beautiful house of cedar there in Jerusalem, the new capital, he he feels bad that the, the ark of God still dwells in a plain tent. And so he shares this concern with his 
his good friend Nathan the prophet, which is yet another indication of David's heart for God, one of his closest friends and advisors, is a godly prophet who shares the same spiritual priorities as David. And so when David shares his concern, Nathan goes, it says, go for it. You know, David, do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. For it was a noble idea that David had to build a house for God. Now, when Nathan said this, he was speaking as David's friend. He was speaking impulsively as a friend, not not in his official capacity as a prophet. David wanted to do something for the Lord, and so Nathan naturally wanted to encourage him in that regard. And the Lord had been with David, and this was a great idea David had. This was a godly concern David had. The fact that he dwelt in such a nice house while the ark of God was still in a tent, and and David implicitly uh, or implied that he wanted to build a great and noble house a temple, if you will, for God. But God had something different in mind. What ended up being an an actual reversal of David's plan. And we read about the promise of God in the first 17 verses. Having read the first three, look with me now at 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 to 17. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David... Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges, the leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So powerful just even reading this revelation from God to David 
through the prophet Nathan. I just want to walk back through it a few moments and and consider the sequence of what's happening here. The Lord begins by objecting to David's plan. It's a mild rebuke. But God begins by objecting to David's plan and explaining why. First, the Lord says, I cannot be confined to a temple. And this is reiterated by David's son Solomon years later when the, when the temple finally was built. Notice what Solomon prayed during the dedication ceremony. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So the Lord cannot be contained in a temple. He wanted David to know that. The second thing the Lord says is, I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought Israel out of Egypt. I've traveled in a tent the entire time. And never once did I say to any of the leaders of Israel, how come you haven't built me a house of cedar? Now I would like to pause just for a moment for us to ponder and appreciate the tremendously gracious condescension of God. Did you catch what the Lord says about himself here? That he identifies with his people. And God is more than content to travel with them. He travels with us over the rugged terrain of our lives, just as Israel went through their wilderness wanderings. God is with us through all the twists and the turns, through all the trials and the temptations. As John Newton put it in Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares. And yet God is with his people every step of the way. God says through his prophet Isaiah that when we pass through the waters, God will be with us so that the waters don't overwhelm us. God says that when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. Why? So that you will not be burned. God is with us every step of the way, sharing the rigors of the journey with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Not only is God with us, but God also does great things for us. And and God recounts some of the things he had done for David in verses 8 and 9. It's really a very overarching summary. He said, David, do you remember you used to follow the sheep in the pasture? And I took you from the pasture and I made you prince over my people Israel. Not only that, but I was with you wherever you want and I cut off all your enemies before you. In essence, God had done everything for David. David was actively involved in all that God did, but God did everything for David. But God wasn't done doing great things for David. There were still more blessings to come. God says in verse 11, David, I know that you had it in your heart to build me a house, but actually that's not going to be what happened. I'm actually going to build you a house. The word house appears 15 times in this chapter. You might have picked it up several times in the portion we have already read. It's used 15 times. Sometimes the word house is used literally in terms of a physical building like a palace or a physical temple. 
such as in most of the verses we've already read, verses 1, 2, 5, 6, 7, and 13. In all those cases, it's referring to a literal house, a palace, or a temple. But in verse 11, and in the second half of the chapter, as we will see, verses 16 to 29, the word house is used metaphorically. It refers either uh, to David's um, extended family or clan in the past and how God had blessed him and brought him to this point, or it refers in this most predominantly to the royal dynasty, the eternal dynasty that God is going to build for David. Uh, We use the term house like this even in this sense today when we speak of the British royal family. They are referred to as the house of Windsor. That refers to their dynasty, and that is how the word house is used here. Now, God's promises about both these things, a physical temple and a royal dynasty, are brought together in verse 13. God says to David, your descendant, your son, who was Solomon, of course, will end up, will succeed you on the throne, and he's going to build me a temple. And therefore, David's house, a royal dynasty, will be established, and God's temple, a physical building, will be built. God says that he will be like a father to David's son. And to all the sons that would follow after him, he says, uh, when he disobeys me, when they disobey me, I'll discipline him, I'll I'll discipline them as as fathers do their sons. But my steadfast love I will not take away from him as I took it away from Saul. And the reason is clear. Because God was going to give David a dynasty that would last forever. This is the house that God was going to build. And God's promise is restated in verse 16. God says, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And history shows us how God's promise to David played out. Notice what God said. He said to David, I will make your name great. And here we are talking about David 3,000 years later. God did indeed make David great. David became Israel's greatest king, the gold standard by which all the other kings that followed him were measured. I thought of Michelangelo's statue of David built over five centuries ago as a tribute to this great man, a marble statue 17 feet tall, a tribute to his greatness, a great man not only in the Bible, but a great man revered in history. You think about the world of of sports or business, even people that don't read the Bible at all, who, who may not even worship God in any real sense of the word. They talk about these stories of overcoming seemingly impossible odds, and they are expressed in the world of business and sports as David and Goliath stories. David's reputation lives on. 3,000 years after his lifetime, David's name is still great. Now there is a name that's above every other name, including David. But God, through his promises, made David's name great. God also said that David's son would succeed him on the throne. And that's what happened. Solomon ascended the throne after David, and thus a royal dynasty was established. 
During Solomon's reign, Israel enjoyed a time of peace, undisturbed by their enemies, just as God said they would. Solomon built the temple, just as God said he would. Many of David's descendants, if you're familiar with the history of the kings, were bad dudes. They were wicked kings. They were unworthy kings. And in David's line, God did discipline them. But the dynasty continued for four centuries, unbroken. But in 587 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed the temple took the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, into captivity. The family of David continued to exist, but they did not regain the throne. So even though it's great that his dynasty lasted for four centuries until the Babylonian captivity, did the promise of God fail? After all, God had said that his house would be established forever. His throne would be established forever. So did the promise of God fail? I believe most of us know the answer to that. The answer is a resounding no. Because God's covenant with David would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. David's greater descendant. You can turn to the first page, the, the, the opening statement of the Gospel of Matthew, the first line of the first book in the New Testament, and it begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew lists the generations by name from Abraham, the father of Israel, to King David. And then from King David to the Babylonian captivity. And then listen, from the Babylonian captivity to Christ. And then he concludes after the listing of these genealogies uh, from generation to generation. He concludes by saying, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the Babylonian captivity, 14 generations. And from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King of the Jews, 14 generations. Matthew was making uh, an emphatic point that the royal dynasty of David not only continues, but actually culminates in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You want a good apologetic for Jesus being the Messiah? Consider this. You will not find a more recent genealogical link to David than Jesus of Nazareth. Because Jesus is the end of the line. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise that he would establish a house for David, a royal dynasty that would last forever. The kingdom continues unbroken through Jesus Christ. Peter emphasized this as he preached at Pentecost, the passage that Brother Luke met, read moments earlier in Acts 2. Did you catch what Peter said there? He said, David was a prophet. Peter says that David knew that God had promised that he would set one of his descendants upon the throne. 
And that when David said in Psalm 16 that the Lord would not leave him among the dead, that the Lord would not allow his body to rot, David was not talking about himself, but David was looking into the future and predicting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A miracle of which Peter and all the apostles were eyewitnesses. And here they were telling the crowd about it on this very day. And they said, now God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. And he sits enthroned as king in the place of highest honor at God's own right hand. (laughs) David had planned to build God a house. But God had other plans. David, I am going to build you a house. Something that is beyond your wildest dreams and will bring salvation to the entire world. A dynasty and a kingdom that would culminate in Jesus Christ, God's only son, the royal and legal descendant of David, who would fulfill all of God's promises to David. Now we're reading through this, and we're just kind of sifting through it mentally in these few moments that we're sitting together. We can only imagine the profound effect The pronouncement of these promises had on David as Nathan spoke to him all these words from the Lord in accordance to the whole vision that God had given him. But we get a glimpse of how David responded in the second half of the chapter as we move from the promise of God to the prayer of gratitude in verses 18 to 29. 2 Samuel seven eighteen to 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. You see that? God says he'll make David's name great. David says, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. 
And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. The first thing David does upon hearing this revelation of these incredible promises of God is he goes into that tent where the ark of God resided and he just sits before the Lord. That communicates that this king is in no hurry to rush through this response to the God who is so great And it's done so much for him. Think of how busy David's life must have been. Think of all the responsibilities that he had as king. And yet he takes time to leave all those aside. And not only goes to the tent of God, but he sits in the tent before the presence of the Lord to process everything that he has heard and to give God appropriate praise and thanks. David is stupefied. (laughs) He is overwhelmed by God's grace. So David sits down as long as he needs to, to process everything he has heard, and to contemplate the grace of God in his life. As we look at David's prayer, we see that he gives God, first of all, thanks for his previous grace. David marvels over the grace of God that has already been shown him. He said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? God, I would have never arrived to where I am right now if it wasn't for you. You're right. I was a shepherd out in the pasture following a bunch of sheep. You're the one that made me prince over Israel. God, you have been so good to me. You've, you've cleared out my enemies, enemies that were way too strong for me. God, you cleared them out of my way and you made me king. You made me prince over your people, Israel. God, who am I and who am my family that that you've brought us this far. God, who are the people of Israel? Out of all the nations of the earth you could have chosen, you chose this weak, little, pathetic nation who was like a, a newborn baby left exposed to the elements that was writhing in the desert and would have died. But God, you scooped us up in your arms and you took us and you rescued us, you redeemed us, you made us your own. You made us your people and you became our God. David marvels over God's previous grace. But then David marvels over God's promised grace. The great blessings that were yet to come. Not only to him and to his descendants and to the whole nation of Israel, but to all humanity. The global dimensions of God's promise to David are indicated by David's words in verse 19 when he prays to the Lord 
You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord. It's not instruction just for me, or for my descendants who follow me, or for the people that we are called to serve, the flock of Israel. But Lord, this is instruction for all mankind, for all humanity, for the whole earth. The word instruction there is the Hebrew word Torah, which is usually translated law, meaning the law of God, but it can be used in a more general sense to refer to instructions or lessons or teachings from God for the benefit of those who hear. David says that God's promises to him are instructive for all humanity because it is through their fulfillment that salvation will come to the ends of the earth. It is through their fulfillment that God will fulfill His promises not only to David, but to David's ancestor Abraham, the father of Israel, to whom the Lord said, through your offspring, all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the people groups will be blessed. God's promises to Abraham and David are all fulfilled in their ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ. And David, by the Spirit of God, was able to comprehend this truth to some degree. Peter calls him a prophet, that he's somehow able to look into the future. He didn't know Jesus' name, but he spoke of the Messiah to come and knew that God would not allow his body to rot in the grave, but would raise him up, that he would not see corruption, that the royal dynasty would last forever, and the Messiah would reign forever. And so David prayed about it. He prophesied about it. He said, let your will be done, O Lord. He says, in essence, your kingdom come. Let your word be established to your servant. Build my house, all that you have spoken for your glory. And as David praises God for his his previous grace, his past blessings, and as David praises God for his promised grace, the, the mighty blessings that were yet to come, In the midst of all this thanksgiving, David is keenly aware of God's sovereignty over everything. We could call that thanking God for His prevailing grace. That God is sovereign over all. Did you catch that seven times in his prayer, David addresses Him as the Lord God. Some translations say, Sovereign Lord. That's a good translation. And that's besides all the other times David refers to him as God or Lord or Lord of hosts. He specifically says, O Lord God or Sovereign Lord, seven times in his prayer. I find it interesting that Abraham addressed God in this very same way in Genesis 15. Thus revealing another connection between God's covenant with Abraham in God's covenant with David, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, which is why we utter our amen to the glory of God through Christ. God is sovereign, and He is therefore able to perform all that He has promised. Paul says this in Romans 4.21. Oh my goodness, so much could be said 
about God's covenant with David. We're but scratching the surface this morning, the surface this morning, just based on what we read here in 2 Samuel 7. But the theology of this covenant, the promise and fulfillment dynamic is covered throughout all the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Gospels of the New Testament, the Pauline epistles, the other epistles, so much more could be said and is said in Scripture about God's covenant with David. I don't know about you, but yesterday I saw this video clip from a helmet camera of a skier in the French Alps who fell into this massive crevice and plunged down what seemed to be an endless snow crater. Any of you see that? It was incredible. It was like, you could almost like feel what he was like in that moment, skiing and all of a sudden, and you just see like crazy going down and he's able to stop before it just goes down even further. And I told Ruthie last night, I said, that's kind of how I felt when I started studying the Davidic covenant. It's like, man, once you get into this thing, it is like, so deep and so massive and so incredible, how can you even like come back up out of it? As one commentator said, quote, any reader could drown in the ink that has been spilled over 2 Samuel 7, and the chapter richly deserves all that ink due to the massive significance of God's promises to David. They all find their yes in Jesus. David's greater descendant who would bring eternal salvation to the ends of the earth. God has built an eternal house through his son, King Jesus. If there's one thing you take away from this text today, realize that God has built an eternal house through his son, King Jesus. David's greater descendant. Any of the partial fulfillment we see of the prophecies here in 2 Samuel 7 through David and Solomon are are fulfilled in an infinite way through the reign of Jesus Christ. Read Revelation 21 and 22, where the gates of the city of New Jerusalem are open. There's no more fear of the enemy. There's no more sickness, crying, loss, or pain. For all these things God has done away with, He has made all things new. And things will continue like this forever and ever and ever. What theologians call the eternal state in the new heaven and new earth where Christ will reign supremely. In the meantime, before the the kingdom of God consummates in the return of Jesus Christ, God pleads through his people to all people everywhere to repent. To turn away from your self-effort, your self-autonomy, which you hear about so much today. Your self-works, your self-interest, your self-pursuit. Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, a true follower of mine, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. We saw a wonderful example of that just in our previous hour as we watched dispatches from the front and and hearing how the gospel of God continues to go forth in the hardest places to reach on earth. God's kingdom is coming. 
It already has come in the person of Jesus Christ, and you are a part of that kingdom if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior. Paul says that God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his own beloved Son. How? Through faith in him. By turning from our sins, from our self-effort, our self-autonomy, and putting our faith fully in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ who died for our sins just as the Scriptures predicted He would, who was buried and rose again the third day just as the Scripture said He would, just as David himself prophesied about His descendant who was to come. God has built an eternal house through His Son, King Jesus. And now He calls all men, women, everywhere to repent and put their trust in Him so that you can become part of that eternal household of faith, the eternal kingdom. With that in mind, let me give you in closing three points of application that I draw from this text. Number one, cultivate a heart for service. Cultivate a heart for service. The chapter began with David's desire to do something noble for God. God had other plans for David, But the Lord was pleased with this attitude, with this initiative on the part of David. We know this because in 1 Kings 8, when when Solomon, after the construction of the temple, dedicates it, Solomon says this, Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. And there are many noble things that we at times will desire to do for God. But those dreams won't be realized in this life because God has other plans. And while the temptation can be to be disappointed in those dreams, that, that those aspirations that don't seem to be realized in this life, God says, hey, my plans are sovereign, but I want you to know it was good that it was in your heart. And that's why we pray, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. But know that God is pleased every time you set out to do something noble for God. God says it was good that it was in your heart to do this thing. So cultivate a heart for service, whether or not your goals are fully realized. Number two, contemplate the grace of God. Again, I'm reminded from this text that despite all of his leadership responsibilities, David took time to sit before the Lord and simply contemplate his goodness. Recounting God's past mercies, reveling in all the joy and blessings that were yet to come, and David thanked God accordingly. I remember it was a few months ago, I think it was Dave Welker said, in one of our elders' meetings, that if all we had in life were only the things that we sincerely thank God for, how much would we have? If all the things we had in life were the things that we sat and sincerely thank God for, how many things would we have? Sometimes, even when we do thank God, We know it's the proper thing to do. We'll we'll rattle off a quick list without taking time 
to really adequately meditate on what great things the Lord has done for us. God, who am I? Who is my family that you have brought us this far? Oh God, you are so good. God, you are so great. Scripture says, consider, contemplate what great things the Lord has done for you. So contemplate the grace of God. Then thirdly, finally, communicate the gospel of God. It's instructive for us that David considered the global significance of God's promises to him. And that's why he prayed near the very start of his prayer of response, God, this is instruction for mankind. This is instruction for all humanity, O Lord God. This is revelation that everyone on earth needs to know. And yet, even after David's lifetime, God continued to reveal more and more information about the coming Messiah, more promises, more prophecies that would be fulfilled in Christ. David proclaimed what he knew. He wanted the whole earth to know about the promises of God and to celebrate the presence of God, the worthiness of God in their life. Brothers and sisters, as blessed as David was, we have so much more. We have the full revelation of God at our fingertips. We have all the revelation of God stored up within our hearts through the Word of God. We are not meant to keep this amazing news to ourselves, for it is instruction for all humanity. So as we go our separate ways and continue to think about the incredible implications, the incredible significance of God's covenant to David and how it's fulfilled through and in Jesus Christ for our sakes, let us remember to sit down and thank God for the great things He has done for us. And let's continue to stand on the promises of God. And let's continue to go and tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We pray that it would penetrate deeply into our hearts, pierce us, God, bring conviction where we need to be convicted, bring comfort and encouragement where that needs to take place, and use us, to bring the good news of salvation to others so that they too can rejoice in our great God and Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.